For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hey, uh, before we get started, I have a quick word from our sponsor, lynda.com. If you've been making New Year's resolutions to improve yourself, pick up new skills, or just have fun, uh, you could go to lynda.com and find the courses that are now being used by over 1 million people spread across 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, business, uh, plus software like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. It's all taught by experts. And when you have an account, you can take as many of the classes you want, all for the same price. But that price is going to be zero if you take our 10-day free trial by visiting Linda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash long form. You'll be helping support the show, plus getting yourself 10 days of access to every course on Lynda.com, even if you're on your iPhone or Android device, plus all the new courses they add every week. Um, some stuff I thought looked pretty interesting is there's a podcasting with GarageBand course, a getting things done course, and a grammar fundamentals course, which I could probably use. Um, do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for that trial at Lynda.com slash long form. Thanks, Linda. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Good morning. Hey, you guys. Fine morning it is. Great yeah, week Evan, here in the office. Evan Ratliff, three-time nominee for this year's National Magazine Awards. Well, not, not, not personal. I like to think of it as personal. <laughs> for me, it's personal. Actually, I didn't do anything on those days. I like but to yeah, think we, of them. The Atomist uh, got three. And, and you. The Atomist. What, do you, what are you nominated in? Uh, we are in uh, reporting feature writing and multimedia. It's actually our third in reporting, nomination reporting, and our third in multimedia both, I think. Uh, it's like an annual tradition for you guys now. If, hey. you're, if you're interested in checking out um, uh, where to find those Atavis stories and all of the uh, ASME nominees, you can go to longform.org. We got a whole list of them there. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to plug into a great uh, universe of reading. Yeah, congratulations to everyone, but mostly Evan. Yes. <laughs> uh, who's on, who's, eh, Evan. Who's on the show this week? Uh, on the show this week is Anand Gopal. Um, he is currently a National Book Award finalist for his book, No Good Men Among the Living, which is about the experiences of Afghani civilians during the war. Is Afghani the right way to refer to people in Afghanistan? I think so. Okay. Of uh, Afghani civilians, um, it's it's a side of the war that is kind of underreported on, I think. And uh, the story of how he did it is pretty incredible. Uh, he was a physicist who had had no writing training, who found himself living in Kabul and uh, going into the countryside in Afghanistan and uh, doing the research that resulted in this book. That is wild. You hear about his writing from uh, from Matt Akins. Matt Akins, yeah, he's a friend yeah. of Matt Akins. Matt Akins, uh, long form podcast number one. Yeah, we got to have Matt Akins back on we the should. show. It's it, been like seven years. And also, if Matt Akins says this is the one book you should read about Afghanistan, yes, he's fairly he's knowledgeable right. on that topic. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I, I would say, Aaron, this is like as as excited as you have been about a book in several years. I, I'm very. I was very excited about this book and. Um, we had a really interesting discussion about it. It brought up, like, this is not an easy book to report. Um, there are a lot of issues uh, implicit in, in, in doing a narrative like this, um, fact-checking, all, all the things go along with it. So this is an interesting one. I uh, look forward to people hearing it. Do we have any sponsors this week? If you want people to hear what you have to say, you should try Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. Uh, we thank them once again for their sponsorship uh, for now, here's Aaron with Anand Gopal. 
welcome, Anand Gopal. I might have fucked that up, but I'm not. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna roll with it. Uh, I actually, I was just asking you my traditional NPR uh, levels question, which was what you had for breakfast, and you said that you go to bed at 5 a.m. And, and wake up sort of past the breakfast hour. When you're living in Iraq or in Kabul, do you have like a nine to five work day? We'll we'll get to how you got there, but I'm sort of curious as to like how someone ends up in that that kind of a pattern while doing a lot of work. Well, I've always sort of been the sort of person who avoids having a nine-to-five job, and that's one of the reasons why I went down this path. But actually, in Afghanistan, people rise and go to bed with the sun because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the country actually doesn't have good electricity. So that was one of the biggest challenges of working in a place like Afghanistan is having to wake up at 7 or 8 a.m. Because if you wake up at 9 or 10, you already miss three good hours of interviews. And by 5 o'clock, it's already kind of... Difficult to get people to talk by 7 o'clock. It's almost unheard of, at least for me, unheard of out in the villages to go and talk to people in a formal interview. Is the bulk of what you do as a reporter interviewing people? No, there's a lot of just going to places and getting a sense of things, too. Uh, In fact, when I first moved to Afghanistan, which was back in 2008, I hit the road with a motorcycle to the southern provinces where the fighting was the most intense. And a lot of it was just hanging out and sitting and listening. And some of my best uh, or most insightful moments were not informal interviews, but kind of sitting around with 10 or 11 people while we're eating dinner and just being a fly on the wall and just listening to the conversations. I got more out of that than I think I ever got out of formal interviews. What point in your life did you decide that... um reporting. uh, You've used the word war reporter on here, and I think that's wrong for what you do. Um, But reporting in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, at what point did that become an ambition for you? Fairly early on, uh, I would say early on being in college or coming out of college. But um, I didn't actually actualize that ambition for for many years because I I switched careers. Uh, My background's in physics. And so um, I was doing science. I was doing math. That's what I did until 2008, actually. Um, there came a moment in late 2007, I was doing sort of very theoretical chemistry and physics where most of it, it you know, when we say you're doing science, people tend to think of being in a white coat in a lab, but that's not what I did. I did, I was in, a, in front of a computer and I was with a pen and paper and I was doing something that was very solitary and very sort of fundamental in the sense that it, it sought to ask fundamental questions about the nature of reality. But there was other side of me that was always very interested in the here and now, and particularly in the wars that are going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so that was, I, I, sorry, I had already always kept an, an ear to that for many years. And by 2000, late 2007, I decided that I needed to take a break from doing physics and chemistry and see what the world was like. And that's when I moved to Afghanistan. How many years had you uh, sunk into physics at the point you made that decision? Oh, this is, we're talking, if you include undergrad, um, probably seven or eight years at this point. Um, The sort of initial spark came when I was in college um, and I was living near the Twin Towers on 9-11. And so I saw the attacks in, in front of me and I actually spent an hour under a car with somebody else who had who was worried that he um his that his loved one was in the towers um so i had seen all of that i knew people who worked in the towers and the restaurant at the top and i actually was displaced by the attacks and i ended up living because of, i went to nyu so i ended up living in a hotel for a couple of months um because of that and so whether i wanted it or not um sort of the middle east and south asia sort of force itself on my onto my consciousness. And so since that point up until 2008, I was always following that story. I mean, most people when they're um, thinking of shifting careers to writing, um, like might take a class at the learning annex or, um, you know, like submit a few pieces and, and see how it catches. That's a that's a pretty extreme move going straight to Afghanistan. Did you have a plan for what you were going to do there or how you were going to turn this into a career? Well, I had no plan, and I should say for anybody who's listening that you actually should submit pieces to the Learning Annex or yeah. take classes there because, um, you know, I got very lucky. I moved to Afghanistan in 2008, and at that point, the war in Iraq was beginning to wind down. The, the sort of peak intensity of the fighting was 2006 and 2007 in Iraq, and so by 2008, the fighting was beginning to, to abate to some extent, and that meant that media attention was also beginning to abate. 
And at the same time, Afghanistan was beginning to really pick up. 2009, up until then, was the most violent year. And 2008, up until then, was the most violent year. So every year sort of broke the record of the previous year. So I landed in early 2008 when when people were just beginning to reacquaint themselves with Afghanistan after the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks and the, and the invasion at that point. And so I got lucky, but I don't know how reproducible that is, you know, and so I wish, you know, if I were to start today, I probably would, you know, go take a class at Learning It's funny, I think um, we had uh, Matthew Akins on the show, he was actually the first guest, and I don't actually remember who he asked this of, but he asked some senior um, war correspondent, like, hey, I'm thinking about going to to X place, what do you think? And the guy was like, don't do that, like, absolutely, like, there's a lot of things I feel like people are like, yeah, like, change your life, like, go do something else, but very few people would encourage another person to go into a, a war zone. It's almost like a taboo that you can't, in good conscience, encourage someone to follow their dream to Kabul. Did you have, like, a, a support structure or any one thing there? Or? Yeah, I didn't actually have a much of a support structure. I knew very little about the country. I didn't speak the language. I read a couple of books about it. But, you know, on the flip side of that was that when I landed in Afghanistan, because I was sort of unattached, I wasn't connected to a bureau, I didn't have a translator, I was able to tap into networks and milieus that I wouldn't have had, probably have had access to if I'd gone the traditional route, which is, you know, you work your way up to becoming a foreign correspondent, you get sent overseas, and you're operating out of a bureau. So, for instance, when I when I first got to Afghanistan, uh, for the first couple of months, I was living in a huge hall with migrant workers from around the country and also from Pakistan. Everybody sort of nobody talked to each other because everybody thought that the other person was a suicide bomber or you know somebody sent to sent uh, you know do an attack. Yeah. And we would lie in a big sort of row, and somebody would come two times a day and uh, dish out some sort of soup and or goulash or whatever to to everybody. That was the environment that I was in. And what that did for me is, number one, it, it forced me to learn the language very quickly. Yeah. Whereas if I had gone the other traditional route, probably it would have taken years to learn the language. I'm going to embarrass myself here. That language is... Dari. Dari. Um, which is essentially Farsi. So Farsi in the, the Afghan version is Dari. Okay. And that's the lingua franca of Afghanistan, and that's the language of Kabul. So, you know, it forced me to learn the language, and it also connected me to people who typically don't get a chance to interact with Western journalists very often, which are, for example, day laborers. Or in this case, many of them came from the South, where the war was being fought. And so I was immediately interested in, in some of their stories. And so that was a great benefit. And I think, you know, if you are somebody who's looking to start out and wanting to go, and I yeah. think you shouldn't do it, but yeah. if you do do it, that, you know, you should try to seek out those communities and those milieus that are perhaps off the beaten track and not the ones that journalists tend to speak to. I feel like we should just like pre-record like a parental advisory before exactly, all these interviews. Yeah. It's like, don't go to Afghanistan. Do not go to Afghanistan. Don't go to war zones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe in a decade you can go to Afghanistan, but don't go to Afghanistan yeah. right now. Um, so how deep into an experience like that did you publish your first story from Afghanistan? Well, um, I actually started uh, with a very small wire service called Interpress Service, and I uh, uh, it was. It took me about a month, I, I would say, to publish a story, and I, I went to a refugee camp and published a story about internally displaced people and refugees. IPS is a great news service. It's difficult to make a living just reporting yeah. for them, right? And so that was sort of the immediate challenge that I faced very quickly. But yeah, I mean, like, like, um, tell me if any of this is too personal, but like, how much money did you have in your like? Did you have enough money to make it in Afghanistan without selling stories, or were you? Oh on no, a no, no. I, I saved up, I think, like fifteen hundred dollars or something like that. Well, I went to Afghanistan with two things. I went with a spreadsheet which said that okay, I can last this number of days. I don't remember what it was, maybe yeah. like thirty or something. And my immediate ambition was to try to publish a story with the Christian Science Monitor because I knew they were freelancer friendly. And so what I did is I I printed out every article on Afghanistan that the Christian Science Monitor had published in the last three years. Yeah. And got a spiral bound and took it with me. What was your intention of printing in printing those articles out to sort of learn the so style? Learn, yeah, yeah, learn the style. Because I'd never, yeah. I mean, let alone writing a, a news article, I'd never written anything, I, I think, in my life. So, yeah, just learn the style, learn, get a sense of what was newsworthy and what wasn't. Yeah. Something I'm still trying to get a sense of, to be honest. But um, <laughs> t- at that point, um, we were talking, you know, 50 to to $100 a story. 
publishing a story one or once a week or twice a week, and I had fifteen hundred dollars in my bank account. So staying at the with the migrant workers was not simply a reporting tactic at this point. No, 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 no. It was because it was I think a dollar or two dollars a day. God, I feel like your story, like there's like another guy who's like the wacky world you in Afghanistan who is actually a really bad writer and goes like, you're really good. At, maybe you weren't at the beginning, but you're a very, very skilled writer now. You've been nominated for or you're a finalist for the National Book Award. So did you know that you had this in you to, to do this stuff? I mean, I, I guess I don't have that kind of self-confidence. So I'm curious as to sort of how you knew that you could make it doing this. Well, I mean, there's a fine line between self-confidence and hubris <laughs> and, and stupidity, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, to be honest, I don't know how good of a writer I was when I got there. Um, whatever you see in the book is the product of years of, of feedback and editorial feedback. And... So but are there other people who are running around Kabul who are like, based on people I know who've been on the show who've gone to Kabul, it like seems like it's a um, magnet for people who are like want to undergo a crazy life change kind of now i mean that sounds crazy i'm sure that like santa fe is more of a magnet for people who want a crazy life change but like did you meet other people in kabul who had who had gone without a professional basis i actually had very little contact with other expats Mm -hmm. not by design but simply because i didn't know um where they hung out or what the scene was and i was kind of thrust into this other world of afghan tribal elders and, and and things which was an education and really important education for me. And it's only, I mean, I, I remember like going to parties in 2010, two years after I've been to Afghanistan, and, and meeting people whose bylines I've seen for two years from Afghanistan for the first time. It took me a long time to meet that community. It's almost like your first year in uh, Afghanistan is sort of like a microcosm for the American involvement in Afghanistan. Like you show up with the like spreadsheet of expenses right. exactly and you're like I you don't know how to go to the right Pen party. View of reality yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's amazing how it worked out. So how long did it take to you get to get in a groove where you were like regularly publishing and you kind of had a, had a beat and regular gigs? Well, uh, I sold my first story to the Christian Science Monitor a couple of months in. There was this old Russian cultural center, which was one of the, I guess, one of the nicest places in Kabul back in the 80s and 90s, which had been reduced to rubble through this, during the Civil War. And the only thing that was surviving was this sort of um, huge painting of Lenin. But underneath it was complete rubble and opium addicts. And so it was, a, it was an opium den. And so... I sold that story, and from that I began working with the monitor, essentially became their correspondent. And um, I just kind of continued the path that I'd started in, which was sort of living in these strange communities. And so four months into my stay, that's when I hit hit the road with the motorcycle and went down to the south where the fighting was happening. And Afghanistan's sort of incredible in this way because of the hospitality. You can show up at a villager's house and announce yourself and they will be obliged to take you in and um, you know so usually I would show up at the sort of the head of the village who could actually afford to take me in and they would feed me and show me around and then take me to the next place. From what I've heard from a number of people who've reported from Afghanistan there's kind of an expectation that you're paying everyone you know you like pay a guide you're paying a translator like there's there's an economy built around there do you feel like not having the money to do that helped or hurt your reporting early on it helped it, it helped in in this strange way because it forced me to to improvise and be entrepreneurial in a sense you know that first year i spent very little money on expenses um i lived in people's houses um People, even if I wanted to pay, people wouldn't let me pay. This was the scene. And and so that just, again, it it allowed me to tap into this community or this, I mean, the community is not the right word, but this, this sort of network of people who, uh, who I would have never gotten a chance to, to meet otherwise. And today, it's a totally different situation from when I go to places, even like when I go to Afghanistan, you know, I did a story for Harper's a few months ago in Afghanistan, and I stayed in the hotel. In, yeah. in Kandahar. Um, you know, I didn't stay in the, the village's house. I feel I, there's like a universal law, which is like at a certain point you've stayed in your last hostel. And once you've <laughs> right. crossed that Rubicon, you just you can't really come back to the hostel. 
I, yeah, and and um, I feel like I need to go back to to maybe I don't know maybe it's a misplaced sense of authenticity or something, but yeah. I feel like I need to go back. But I find myself every time I go on a reporting trips staying in hotels. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's a terrible thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about about the book. At what time did you start reporting the stories that are in the book? Well, there's sort of two types of stories in the book. There's the the life stories of three Afghans, um, yeah. and then there's more of the general story of the of the war. Right. And the latter, I started reporting pretty early on. Right. I'm not always consciously so, but by the way, this trip on motorcycle took about four or five months. And did you know how to ride a motorcycle before you did no, this? No, no. Oh. So there's actually a park in Kabul with a little motorcycle track yeah. where you can you can train. And um, I had met a guy who also functioned as my translator. I paid him like $50 a month to do this. His English was slightly better than my diary at that point. <laughs> but he, he he knew how to ride a motorcycle, and, and he actually had one at first. And so we used to go into this track and practice. But, but the best practice, of course, is hitting the road. So of the three stories, the, the book has three th- main threads. Um, it's the story of a uh, housewife who became a senator. Sorry, spoil, spoiler alert it's if spoiler you haven't alert, read yeah. um, A warlord and a Taliban commander. Was yeah. It? Yeah, yeah. The, I, the stories are overlapping and, and intertwined in this way that really uh, erodes distinctions between different groups and tribes and different and portions of history. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's very, it's like the confusion is very convincing um, because if I'm confused and I'm actually having the whole thing explained to me, I imagine that being there and talking to people, right. it's 10 times as confusing. At what point did you pick these people and say, these people are going to tell this story? I'm going to use these people as, as my guides through this story. Well, I'd actually collected a lot of stories, like the ones that appeared in the book, for a number of years. And um, it was only after I decided that I'm going to write this book and sit down and do this full time that I honed in on those three stories. But all of them I came about in, in sort of circuitous ways. For example, the housewife, who forms the sort of the bulk of the book and her story, uh, initially I approached her because I wanted to profile her husband, who, um, well, this is another spoiler alert, but you know, her husband was killed in, in the course of of Everyone in the book dies. Everyone, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 uh, that's the spoiler yeah. right there. Um, her husband was killed, and um, I was very interested in her husband as as somebody who was very progressive growing up. He was a communist during the 80s um, and then became quite conservative in many ways, and he, he moved to the countryside. He grew out his beard and took on sort of the affectations of being religious, religious and um, he ends up being killed. And he ends up being killed by this very powerful warlord who was backed by the U.S. So and I thought that's kind of an interesting story, and it shows a lot of things about Afghan history and also shows about something about the U.S. involvement. Now, of course, he, he being dead, I, I found his, his wife, and I very quickly realized that his wife is a lot more interesting than, than he was. And in speaking to her, you have to be very careful in the ways you conduct these interviews. Um, in her case, for instance, it's it's not often that a, somebody like me, a male, gets to actually spend a lot of time with and get to know an Afghan woman just because of the gender barriers that are in place. And so one of the ways, it turned out to be a benefit because one of the ways I broached the subject initially was as a profile of her husband. And it was through that that she kind of opened up and told me about her own life story. The book has a, um, a very deep supply of empathy for the characters, and, and that extends not just to this woman whose story is, I would say, fairly universally inspiring, but also to the commanders who do some fairly horrific things. And even her husband uh, breaks her arm and beats her right. at, at one point in, in the book. How do you maintain that? And I don't just mean in, in terms of your writing, where I guess you could probably fake it if you want <laughs> to. Did it try your patience as a listener to have so many people whose stories are, are very hard to hear and often among men there's very few people who've emerged without having done something kind of terrible uh, in the book it actually didn't because obviously everything in afghanistan because of the war zone is is amplified in terms of sort of the sins that people commit or the sort of the thing the virtues they have mm-hmm. but if you think about it that's that really sums up everybody we know that there are things uh, that you admire in people, and there are also things that you find less uh, admirable. And I think what helped me in this case was in in meeting these people and interviewing them, I actually got to know them even before I dived into 
interviews and getting to know them as people and knowing that real people are complex and contradictory and do multiple things allowed me to sort of brace myself for the interviews that came. And that's not just the case for individual characters or people, but it's the case for Afghanistan as a whole. There were so many times where I was just exasperated by things in Afghanistan, whether it be the violence and the killing or simple things like the electricity not working. And there's so many times I would just be sort of inspired by sort of generosity that I that I found in Afghans and the ways in which I've sort of learned so much about myself and about human condition in general from talking to Afghans and, and, and going to villages. So as you said, I think quite correctly, this book is sort of alternates between the major strands of, of Afghan history and these three human strands. I, I thought your account of the major strands in Afghan history was the most coherent I've ever read. Like my experience, and I think this is the experience of many Americans with the Afghan war, is having read the New York Times daily coverage for, God, I guess it's what, a decade now? Decade now. Decade, 13 years. 13 years. And then I've read um, people like Matthew Akins' reporting in places like Rolling Stone and, and, and various uh, magazine reporters. But I've never like read a book about Afghanistan before. And there's almost nothing that you can say that is not controversial in some way. How did you start putting together that official history of Afghanistan that's in the book? Well, you know, I came into this with a very different notion of what the war was about. I would say probably it was a very Manichaean notion because I thought that there was these recalcitrant Taliban terrorists and they're fighting out of religious zeal. And um, they were the, you know, there was the U.S. and the Afghan government. And th that was that. But um, traveling through the countryside in my first year really forced me to confront those notions in a very immediate way because, you know, one of the things I was really interested in every time I got into a village was I would try to understand the history of that village. You know, so I'd ask people, especially the elders, because I usually was around elders. So I'd say, you know, do you remember when the Russians came? What was that like? And they'd have these incredible stories about how, you know, Russian tanks, when they first rolled in, this is 1979 or 1980 for many of these places, you know, what they felt, what they thought, or when they first heard that communists had taken power. And in fact, many of them initially were neutral to this question. They're like, okay, fine, communists took power. And then they began to narrate a history that was so radically different from the history that I'd gleaned from the various books that I'd read. Yeah. Particularly if you ask them about... 2001 and onwards, because people were saying things like, well, in 2001, we loved the fact that the Americans were here. We were so sick and tired of the Taliban. There's no jobs. There was, you know, there's no future in this country. And, you know, we were hoping that the U.S. would come here and actually improve our lives. And we supported them. And it turned out that um, a lot of the people that the U.S. supported ended up being killed by the U.S., and that was very revelatory for me. And it was very coherent. And then, you know, when, the, when they gave the stories and when I went back and researched it, there, were, there was actually a coherent story there. But, it, you know, I think you could only get, get at it by going and speaking to the people who are in those areas where the war is being fought. One of the unfortunate tragedies of this conflict is that the ability to report has been so constricted now because uh, of kidnapping and other things. And so most of our reporting comes from places like Kabul, where you get a very different view of things. Um, so so little of the reporting comes from the areas which are being uh, fought over. And, and, and I think if people actually went there and spent time there, if they were able to, they would actually come to the same conclusions that I did. Maybe this is a misperception from the media, but it seems like kidnappings are almost like a trend where... You'll hear about very, very few kidnappings in a region, and then all of a sudden, every random freelancer who walked through got, got kidnapped. How does kidnapping get popularized in a country? Well, you know, kidnapping has always been a major threat in Afghanistan. Um, and even going back to, I think, 2003 or 2004, there were Westerners who were traveling outside of the usual areas who were being killed. There's a very famous case of a Red Cross worker. Uh, who was killed, journalists who were kidnapped and their translators were beheaded, you know. That's always happened. One of the things, it's a sort of a theme, implicit theme in the book is the ways in which the terrorists and the U.S. government in a way kind of mutually constitute each other because uh, the U.S. calls somebody a terrorist, then the terrorist group goes and does something 
as a terrorist and gets on the news and gets recruits, and then the U.S. says that you're an even bigger terrorist than you were before, and it just kind of continues, yeah. sort of vicious circle. And that's sort of the thing with uh, kidnappings too. I mean, I reported in Syria pretty early on in 2012. Yeah, um, that was for Harper's. For Harper's, yeah, it was about a year after the uprising started, and the threat of kidnapping was still there, but it was nothing like what it is today because. I mean, that was like right in the sort of Turkish-Syrian border area, right? I mean, I got I was re- reporting from the same place where James Foley and um, Cantillo, who's currently in captivity, were taken from. I, yeah. in fact, was in the same um, uh, internet cafe that they got taken from just about a month before. But, you know, once you kidnap somebody, you can get on the news, um, you, and also it's money, yeah. and ransom. Right, and then the, that those news stories also prove the hypothesis that, like, you can get on the news by kidnapping people exactly, and get exactly. money. You can, you, get, you can get funded, and you can get on the news by this, yeah. How do you judge like personal safety in in your own work? Where are the limits for you? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking recently about what it took reporting-wise to report my book. And I think, honestly speaking, that if I set out to write this book today, I, I don't know if I'd be able to do it, specifically because of the Taliban character, who's one of the three people I focus on, because I actually spent a month and a half or two, almost two months living with the Taliban yeah. and getting to know them and interviewing them. It's still possible to do that today, but it's much more risky than when I did it back in 2008. And it's because once somebody establishes that this is a way to be a group, which is to kidnap and raise funds, you know, everybody will want a copycat. And so it's very, very, very risky to go and embed with the Taliban today. So how did that, how did that come about in 2008? How did, how did you get that embed? Well, it actually was a very long process where... You know, when, when I got there, one of the things I was interested in, in obviously, was the Taliban because they're the other side and we don't hear anything from them. And I was thinking, what could possibly compel somebody to join a group like that? Some, You know, it's a group that I actually have – I can't identify with almost anything about this group. What would compel somebody to join that group? And it was too risky to go out into the countryside and just meet them. In fact, just shortly before I arrived, this was a case of a um, – a prominent journalist who had been kidnapped and his fixer was beheaded by the Taliban. So it's very risky. But I, I realized that there were Taliban and al-Qaeda members who were imprisoned in the main prison in, in Afghanistan. And through some contacts, I learned that, that there was somebody there from Malaysia who happened to speak Tamil, which is a language I happen to speak. And uh, this person was imprisoned for drug trafficking charges, but he was being held in the same uh, block of the prison as all the bigwigs of the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And so I began posing as his relative and sneaking into the prison about once a week. And I did this for six or seven months. And through doing that, I got to know a lot of these Taliban leaders really well. And I was able to win their trust. So when you're like there, who like who are you to them? Like, how, how do you introduce yourself? Well, I'm, I said I'm an American journalist. Oh, okay. I mean, I think you don't want to lie to them because then they'll, you know, if they find out that they're accused of being a spy. And yeah. so, so I said I was an American journalist. You know, they, there's nothing they could do to me there in the, in the sort of controlled conditions of the prison. And so they had no choice but to either they could either ignore me or talk to me. And a lot of them were actually really curious because most of them, I'd say almost all of them probably had never met, an, uh, met a foreigner before. Certainly never met an American before. And so they were just as interested in me in many respects as, as I was in them. Eventually, I got them to give me a letter with the imprimatur of the leadership of the Taliban based in Pakistan saying, this guy's okay, he's not in a spy, he's not a spy, and um, we're going to send him out into the battlefield and you can, you know, you have to protect him and you can't do anything to him. Did you take that letter to be uh, genuine? Like, uh, what's sort of the, the trust level necessary to, to take a letter like that? At that point, uh, you know, again, we're talking six, seven months. I, I, I did. And, you know, in those days, a letter like that could actually go pretty far because, I, you know, when I was living with the Taliban unit, the commander who was the head of the unit went to great lengths to make sure that the other units didn't know that I was with them hmm. because he was like, well, I got this letter and I could protect you. But, you know, some other guy, that guy's crazy. And, you know, if he, if he kidnaps you, there's nothing I can do, you know, which meant that the letter had some weight, but also that the Taliban is a very sort of um, multi-tendency organization. There's different groups, different commanders, and et cetera. So, but uh, it worked. There's a long uh, history in the book of um, American forces kind of not sharing information with other people and making surprise appearances right. where <laughs> they might have better not. Um, 
Were you concerned about being in a Taliban camp as, as an American citizen? Is that something you report to the army that you're going to do beforehand? Or? No, no, no. I definitely did not because they'd probably track me and maybe kill all of us. Is this a Taliban group that's in an area that's an active combat area? Active combat area, yeah, definitely. And we saw American patrols coming going by all the time. I'm not sure what they would have done. Uh, you know, there's there's a number of times where I actually ran into the U.S. military out in the countryside, not when I was with the Taliban, when I was on my own. And I had a really hard time convincing them that I was American. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, they'd see somebody who looks like me, and especially I had a big Yeah, I was going to say, for yeah. people listening, um, uh, I would describe your appearance as South Asian. I'm assuming from that you speak Tamil that you're Sri Lankan, partially? Uh, my parents are uh, from India. From India. Yeah. Like when you were walking around in Afghanistan, would people take you to be a native? Yeah, usually, yeah. And even when I spoke Dari in my accent, yeah. um, I can get away with it because people think, oh, he's just from like three valleys over when right. they speak differently or something. So when you're like embedded with the Taliban, which is a pretty unique opportunity, I, I, as far as I know, that's like probably I could count on two hands right. the amount of people alive who've, who've done that, or maybe even less, maybe one hand. I don't, I don't actually know who else has done that. Um how do you start gathering information in a situation like that where you know you have a limited time period and you're in a somewhat precarious situation? Like what's what's your game plan, I guess, when you get, get into something like that? Well, I, I made a lot of mistakes early on. Um, you know, one of the first things I did when I got to the Taliban is I just – you know, got on my notebook and you know started interviewing, trying to ask the hard hitting questions. You know, yeah. you know, what are you fighting for? Why are you doing this? What's happening with the civilians you're killing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, you do that and you get boilerplate answers and icy stares. You know, yeah, and, it's funny. I was looking, I was reading. You have on your website like kind of excerpts from an um, an interview that you did with someone from the one of the Hakani brothers, the, the leader of the Hakani. Yeah, the, network, actually, and yeah. Uh, I think the quote is basically the question you asked him is basically, "What's the difference between the Taliban and Al Qaeda?" And I was like, "Whoa, like." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a little bit too close. Like, start with the pleasantries. Like, so, like, so, what happens when you start hitting those hard-hitting questions out of the gate? Uh, yeah, you just get sort of you get propaganda essentially, yeah. right? Boilerplate stuff. You get um, at, at best, <laughs> at worst, you get like I said, icy stares. And, yeah, and I was fairly early on in my journalistic career, so I didn't know how else to ask questions, right? But I was hitting hitting up against this fairly often and not getting anywhere. And so, like, for the first four days, I was like, this is completely useless. Um, but what I realized is I, I dropped that approach and I just started asking them questions about, for example, their childhood. So one of the commanders that I met, I asked him, so you're from this village. The, the village that we were based in was the village he was born and grew up in. And I said, okay, how was the village like before the Russians came? And he just went on about, you know, and probably embellished a little bit about all the fruits that are available and how you can go anywhere and it was peaceful and everybody loved everybody and... And then I said, okay, what's the most memorable, memorable moment you had in that period when you were a child? And he must have been like seven or eight. Then he went on to this long story about something that happened when somebody, uh, his neighbor took something from him. And, and you know, people love to talk about themselves. And he began to open up. And, you know, very subtly, it something shifted. And it no longer became about the war and the Americans versus the Taliban. It became about him being an Afghan and his experience. And I found that I got very far d doing that. And so I would just spend hours talking to people and getting their life stories and getting their memories until the point where about three weeks in, you know, I was almost completely accepted as somebody who is just a journalist and this is what, they're do this is what I'm doing. Would you do audio recordings of those? No, no, never, never. Because, um, you know, you have to convince them you're not a spy. And uh, it's it's strange enough to see them, to, for them to see me writing. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is, I mean, ta most Taliban are... are the commanders tend to be literate, but the fighters not so much, and also the villagers definitely not literate. And it's already interesting for them to see me like writing in a notebook, and they all sort of crowd around and watch me write um, as I do. <laughs> what like what did you turn that experience into? The experience of being embedded with the Taliban. You know, I had all these great ambitions to uh, to do something with this and write this piece about it. Yeah. I actually ended up writing very little about it at the time because I came back to Kabul and I was just thrust into sort of news coverage. Mm -hmm. um, but what it did do is it um, allowed me, I feel like, to understand the Taliban in a way that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. It gave me a sense of perspective and it gave me some contacts. The Taliban commander in my book, one of the ways I was able to get to him is because of my experience uh, with that unit because he actually wasn't that unit before me. And so I through sort of mutual friend or mutual sort of contacts, we I got to him. 
the the Taliban commander in the book. What, what's her, what's his name? God. His nom de guerre is Mullah Cable. Mullah Cable, uh, right? So yeah. So Mullah Cable, like in in the very first part of the book, there's this incredible cinematic sequence where he's basically trying to escape as uh, the U.S. forces begin bombing on, in the very early days of the war, and is on this kind of incredible cross country by cart, any which Anyways, way to get it get it get out enough. of where he was. Um, both him and the the warlord who's who's depicted in the story, uh, John Muhammad, yeah. like I notice how much we as Americans have spun these stories. We've spun the story of what the Taliban is. We've spun the story of who these warlords in the Northern Alliance are, and they've also done a lot of spinning of their own stories. When you were doing interviews with someone like this Taliban commander, who's like telling you this whole story that is somewhat sympathetic to, to his own plight. Like, I felt like, well, this guy is no worse than the other. Like, John, like the other guys, th- yeah. these guys are about equally good, right. bad, whatever. <laughs> how do you start fact-checking a Taliban commander? And, and how do you know when you're being spun yourself as a reporter in this setting? Well, he was the hardest to fact-check. The other two are relatively easy. Um, because, I mean, my first problem was that he didn't understand the concept of fact-checking. Nor right. do most of the people that I interview, right? And And they almost took it as an affront that I didn't trust them, right? which is actually true in a sense, right? In the sense of reportorially, I didn't trust them because I wanted to check everything. But trust operates in a different way in African culture than when we're speaking about journalistic trust. And and so it was a big problem because, for example, that, sto- that story that you described where he decides to quit the Taliban in 2001 during the intense American bombing and, and flee, I needed a way to sort of check that. And so I would start asking him, can you recommend other people who are there with you? Can you give me names, et cetera, et cetera? And he got very defensive. But something interesting happened where, you know, he would sometimes after much sort of uh, effort on my part, he would give me like one or two contacts or through other means I would find contacts. For So, for example, I managed to find the commander of the Northern Alliance, which is the group the U.S. was backing against the Taliban and against him. The commander who was directly responsible for trying to kill him and his unit during their fight and and so there's a scene in the early on in the book where he describes how the Northern Alliance were smuggling weapons or they're stealing weapons from the Taliban because villagers are tying them under the bellies of sheep. And so this commander that I found was actually the guy who orchestrated that uh, whole effort. And so I was able to find him through other means and get his side of the story. And there's you know some differences and some amplifications and insights. And I was able to go back to Mullah Cable and say, hey, this is what I found. And did you know, by the way, this is what he was thinking. He was actually, he never expected to get these weapons. He was actually trying to do something totally different. And it just blew his mind, the Taliban commander. He, you know, And so he began to see me almost as a source for his own life to sort of excavate the sort of hidden moments of his life or the other sides of the story in his experience. And through that, I was able to actually get him to cooperate uh, to a much greater extent than he had been before in helping me fact check. Yeah, there's there's definitely there's a few really good Rashomon kind of moments in the book where someone's like, oh, I was across the valley. I thought <laughs> I thought you were shooting at me. Um, when you're developing someone like this Taliban commander, who I assume is probably the hardest person by to far, track far, in yeah. the book, does it ever come up like, hey, uh, what do you think of the Taliban? Like you personally? Mr. Gopal, like, what are your views on, on my life and works and the things I've been through and, and my choices? You know, it's interesting that uh, Mullah Kabul, the Taliban commander, never asked me that. Yeah. However, John Muhammad, the warlord, he did ask me that a number of times. And so I would always have to be very diplomatic. You know, and there's one point where he, he said, you know, my main goal in life is to fight corruption. This is why I became a governor. This is why I became who I am. You know, I'm kind of like... Cause to sort of fight myself from rolling my eyes when he says this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, don't you think I am the sort of the force against corruption in Afghanistan? Yeah. This is not the moment, I think, to be adversarial to him, but at the same time, I can't lie to him. So I'll say, well, you know, I'll take a cop-out answer. Like, well, you know, I'm just a journalist and I'm, I'm not here to think anything. I'm just here as a scribe to take yeah. your notes or something Physics like that. is my prime interest. Exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> And they're willing to accept that. Uh, it gets me it gets me through the uh, awkward moments. Through the awkward say. moments. Yeah. One of the things I noticed while while I was reading the book is that 
the official American sort of uh, military story of the war. We we went in, we were going to do this, but then we had to go to Iraq, and so we had to leave the JV team over there in uh, Afghanistan, and that's why this didn't work out, but it would have worked. That whole U.S. playbook is kind of absent from the book. Is that something you researched while you were writing the book, and, and, and how... How important is that story to, to telling the story of Afghanistan? Well, you know, I actually spent a lot of time with the U.S. troops. I embedded a number of times. In fact, in one case, I embedded in the same village, once with the Taliban and then uh, a few months later with the, with the American soldiers. But I think, you know, there's two different types of explanations one can try to bring to bear on, on Afghanistan. One is trying to explain the war. Why is there fighting? What is the war about? And right. why is this the longest war in American history? How could have we done this right? How could we have done this right? What does it mean uh, to you know the people who are living there? And then there's a sort of explanation for what does this mean? What is the American experience? That's a very different question. Uh, and there's people who have done a really amazing job at trying to answer that question. For example, Sebastian Younger's work and, and, and others, right? That wasn't my purpose. So it wasn't so much that I was trying to avoid the American perspective. It was that I was trying to answer the question of what this war really means. And to do that, I actually think it, you really need to shift the focus to the Afghans um, and, and take it from the Afghan point of view. If you take it from the American point of view, the war doesn't really make sense because uh, what, what is the standard narrative is that we came in, we defeated the Taliban. Most people wanted us there, and they're happy that they're there, and nobody really likes the Taliban, yet the Taliban are back, and we just can't win for some reason. When you write something like this that, at least for me, like, a after reading this book, I, I don't have strong feelings about what we did in Afghanistan a as Americans. Not that I had, like, not that I thought it was going, going well before I read the book, but it, it exposed, like, so many deep mistakes I assume that this book, now that it's it's really kind of out there, it seems like it's doing very well, is being read by by people in Washington and, and people who are policy analysts around this the story. Like, what kind of a reaction do you get from people who've been involved in the politics of, of Afghanistan? Well, it's interesting. I've gone to D.C. and spoken to people in um, the quarters of power and yeah. the State Department, and uh, people have told me, you know, I think you're absolutely right. This makes a lot of sense. However, acknowledging that and, and trying to change that are two very different things. Um, so much of the problems are structural. It's not just somebody made a mistake. It's I mean, so the central premise of the book is that after 2001, the U.S. defeated the Taliban pretty quickly and pretty easily. In part, they did that because of superior air power, but in part because the Taliban, from the rank and file to the senior leadership, essentially surrendered or tried to switch sides. Meanwhile, al-Qaeda fled the country. So you were left with a situation where there were thousands of U.S. soldiers on the ground without an enemy to fight. Yet there was an ideological prism which, with which this situation was viewed, which was the, the ideology of the war on terror. You're either with us or against us. And there's a whole structure in Washington and around the world that was built up around this ideology. We see some of this today with the, the release of the torture report, but there's much more than that. You know, This mannequin view of the world that you know, you're either a terrorist or you're on our side, there's no shades of gray, even though Afghanistan is all gray. Right. And, and, and so th those are structural issues that are very difficult to change. And so my experience in going and talking to people in DC is that there's a lot of acknowledgement of the errors, but there's a continuation of more or less the same things. And even if you look now at today in Syria, for instance, you have uh, people or groups being targeted in Syria, and the intelligence is coming from other groups in, in a civil war where groups are fighting against each other. And he opens the door to the same problems that happened in Afghanistan, where so much of the U.S. Um, mistakes were caused by sort of bad intelligence or uh, pe people who gave intelligence who had ulterior motives. You know, One of the things the U.S. did in Syria pretty early on was declare Jabhat al-Nusra a terrorist group, um, even though that group hadn't formally declared any intent to attack the United States. And what that did is actually create more popularity for that group and drive more recruits to that group. So I see a lot of the similar mistakes um, taking place in Syria and Iraq. And so it leads me to believe that you know these things are deeply, deeply structural and aren't easy to change. How do you stay informed about all of this stuff? Like, well, like what, what kind of press are you reading as background for understanding being in Iraq or being in Afghanistan? 
or being in Syria? It's very eclectic for me. I rely a lot on Twitter. Um, I'm mostly a consumer of Twitter and not yeah. so much a producer of tweets. There are people doing great work in yeah. a lot of these places, not just journalists, but um, aid workers and others who are on the ground. So, for example, for Syria, um, I follow a small community of scholars and researchers and journalists and aid workers some of whom are Syrian, some of whom are not. Um, it also helps that I've been to Syria and covered the fighting myself. And I, I try to stay abreast and find out about these groups. I think if you just rely on the New York Times or the Washington Post, you, you're only going to get a very sort of element of it. Just not just this is not just to knock the New York Times or the Washington Post, but it's the nature of the medium because a lot of the information you get comes from reports, comes from tweets, comes from videos, comes from right. YouTube. You know, so you have to sort of be ecumenical about your approach. When you made that move from doing daily reporting for places like Christian Science Monitor to to doing this larger book narrative, like what are the challenges of, of shifting from telling one finite story to telling that, that grander story? Well, the first challenge is that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I thought writing a book would be like writing a really long newspaper article. Yeah. And I should say that by when I sold the book, I, I don't think I'd written anything longer than 3,000 words. Were your publishers aware that you had not written anything longer? I'm not sure. I mean, probably not. <laughs> and and you, a book is not just a really long newspaper article, right? Because um, there's a question of pace, for example, which yep. which took me a long time to try to figure out how to get the pace right. How to there's a question of um, the the sort of the the focus, um, how to get the balance right between telling people's stories and zooming out and talking about the larger issues. And maybe if I went back, I would do certain things differently on this book. But um, that's something you don't really have to worry about in a newspaper article, where you have to worry about in a book, especially a book that's narrative nonfiction. If you just tell the stories, which some books do really well, it's hard to make the larger arguments about the war. And of course, if you just tell the larger, larger arguments, then nobody's going to read it because it's yeah, to connect then to. it's like a think tank piece, yeah, sort yeah, of, exactly. right? You you seem interested. I was noticing on your website that you have um, a project that you were trying to fund, and I don't know whether that was ultimately successful or not. To um, translate and document a lot of um, Taliban media, mm-hmm. um, I guess like newspapers and, right. and ver- various things. You seem to have like an almost anthropological interest in the Taliban. Where does that come from, and where and where do you see that going? Well, that particular project is related to the fact that I'm doing a PhD ah. uh, at Columbia University in sociology. And I'm interested in the sociology of political organizations and why they stay together, or why they fall apart. And so me and two fellow researchers happened to come upon, or not happened to, we actually collected over the course of a number of years, um, large amounts of Taliban propaganda in newspapers. And so... What we did is we built scanners, essentially from scratch, using wood and cameras, and um, scanned all the newspapers and digitized them. And now we're using that data to try to figure out why is it that the Taliban, out of all of the various political groups in the country, why is it that the Taliban have remained cohesive, haven't split apart, whereas if you look at the other groups, they've all split, they've uh, joined together, and done all sorts of various other things. And so... It's uh, it's not so much an interest in the Taliban as such, but um, at least for my PhD, it's an interest in um, the the politics of groups and what factors lead to groups staying together, what factors lead to groups falling apart. Hmm. What are the major differences when you atta- when you attack something like that from a sociological perspective rather than as a reporter? Like, what are the what are the sociological questions you ask? Well, you know, there's so much depth and perspective. I feel like I've gained from looking at things from sociologically. So, for instance. Um, the study of the state is something that's very important in sociology. If you look at Afghanistan from the point of view of a state, the kind of questions you ask as a reporter become very different because Afghanistan's a barely functioning state. You know, you have a, a government in, the, in Kabul and then you have warlords and Taliban and stuff all around the, the center. And then, um, you know, looking at it from that point of view, uh, the whole country looks very different because you're no longer asking just a question of um, how do you stop fighting but also the question of what conditions can there be so that the state survives. Right now, the Afghan state gets all of its funding from the West. And here, when I go to D.C., people say, yeah, it's a problem. We should just keep doing that because we need to fight terror. Well, then there's no end to that. You're just going to keep funding the state, and the moment you pull the plug, it's just going to collapse. So you have to start thinking about other ways in which the state can survive. That, for me, at least, came from thinking about it sociologically. Mm. In studying groups like this from a sociological perspective, do you even see something like the Taliban 
as a contiguous idea that that extends back to the the Russian days or the early uh, the Talibs. I don't know. Right, how to Talibs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's certainly a core of people who share common experience going back thirty or forty years from the eighties, which we can call the Taliban. Yeah. But you know, if a Taliban member today who had been around since the 80s, looked, um, was able to speak to his former self in the 1980s, they would almost be unrecognizable in many senses because the group has changed so radically. Uh, today, most members of the Taliban were too young to remember the period when the Taliban were in government. Yeah. So there are people who came of age only knowing the American occupation and the war. You know, Certainly, most members of the Taliban have no memory of a world before war before 1979. So this is their normal, in a sense. So compare that to the Taliban of the 1980s, who actually grew up in a peaceful environment and grew up and actually... So you can see that, for example, when um, tribal elders in Afghanistan get assassinated by the Taliban. It's the older people, the older members of the Taliban, who tend to be more favorable towards the, to the tribal elders, whereas the younger guys, who don't even know a world where tribal elders matter, they know a world where warlords and commanders matter, they're the ones who don't have the respect for the tribal elders, and they're the ones who tend to kill them. In terms of like defining what a group is, like in terms of the sociology of, of how these groups are studied in an academic context, like what what defines a group? Like, do you look at something like IS as like truly a single group, or do you see that as sort of a, a shorthand that the American media uses to lump a varied movement? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the case with both ISIS and the Taliban, where they are bogeymen. They're the enemy du jour, and so it's very easy. And in, you saw this in Afghanistan, and the book goes into this. Essentially, anything that the U.S. or the Afghan government that the U.S. is supporting didn't like became labeled as Taliban. Yeah, Drug trafficking is a perfect example, where some of the big, dr biggest drug traffickers in the country are members of the Afghan government who are being supported by the United States and the CIA. But the drug traffickers that the U.S. doesn't like, they're just labeled Taliban. Right. In Iraq, what we call ISIS is there is a group ISIS, but there's also others who support ISIS who are tri tribal groups. There, There's a Sufi, Sufi group that's an insurgent group that fights against the Iraqi government that's allied with ISIS that gets sometimes lumped in together with ISIS. And then there's this weird kind of recursive effect where the U.S. says all UV people are ISIS or all UV people are Taliban. And attack them or target them as such, and then almost creates the very reality that they mistakenly had, had um, brought into into four because people then make alliances and become Taliban or, or ISIS. When you're trying to tell a story like that in like a news story, are you looking like you have some really excellent cinematic sequences where I was like, wow, if I had written that, I would be like, that's fake. Like there's like a sequence in the book where there's two guys who are competing to be the governor of this of this town. Right. One has been sort of officially appointed, and then the, another one gets appointed by a different body. So they're both supposed to be uh, accepting guns from uh, surrendering Taliban. Right. And um, there's three senior Taliban officials who want to come and surrender. The U.S. intelligence gets word that there's three major Taliban targets there, and basically go in and kill everyone at both the governor and the faux governor's residences, or uh, I think one's a schoolhouse, believing that they are taking out two different terror cells when in fact they're actually taking out people who are accepting unconditional surrenders from Taliban members. As a reporter, are you looking for a story that tells the larger story, or are you what makes a good story for you to include in a book or make a story, you know, make into a news story or whatever? So that story, for example, is something that I'd come across just sort of by accident where, um, you know, one of the things I always do when I go to a place is try to get at the history of it in detail as much as I can. Yeah. And so it, it took place in a, in a village called Hasudurzgan, which is in southern Afghanistan. And when I was there, um, I, everybody I spoke to, I said, the first question I, I would ask, or after I got to know them, it was like, so why is there fighting here? What's going on? You know, why, why is this happening? And time and again, people were pointing to that story, saying, well, you know, this crazy thing happened back in 2002, or, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and so it was, uh, you know, it came out of my desire to try to understand what this war was about, why the fighting was going on. And then when I heard the story, it seemed improbable. 
it seemed ridiculous to me that this would actually happen. And the numbers varied. Some people said 30 people were killed, 50, whatever. But then I went back, when I got back to Kabul and I you know, went through LexisNexis and it turned out not only did this story happen, but people reported on this at this time. Not with a sort of just gestalt of uh, you know the whole picture, but pieces of it. You know, the New York Times reported on one side of the story. Um, Time magazine went to the village in question and reported on parts of the story. So all those pieces were there. And so my job was to try to find a way to put them all together. So I got everything, got all the articles that are written about it, found everything I could, and then I went back to the village and then was able to track down somebody who lived through it and his story corroborated everything that I heard from the elders and also heard from the red in the in the news stories. And that was sort of the process of reporting the whole book was just like that. In many cases, I was like, this can't be true. This is this seems preposterous that the U.S. would actually do this. Yeah, it's like you got them kill, blowing up the one governor's house, but it's like you're also going to blow up the other governor's house the same night. Like it's extraordinary. It's overkill. Yeah, and then and then the the kicker was to go and find the testimony of the soldier who was involved in this in this battle who right. killed everybody, and just to see how radically different his narrative was because he was talking about how. He killed all these hard al-Qaeda fighters, et cetera, et cetera. So the point of doing all that was trying to answer the question, what is the war about, and finding the truth is stranger than fiction in many of these cases. So you're like, at the time when you abandoned physics, or I don't know if you abandoned it, do you, do you have aspirations to go back? I have to aspirations, aspirations, I don't know if it's going to happen. All right, so you were like, I think we said you were like seven years deep in physics, and you're uh, seven years deep in journalism right. now. Um, like, where, where do you go from here? Well, um, I've gotten more interested in storytelling and telling stories, so um, I'm definitely don't want to go back to daily reporting and, and the production of news. I think I'm interested in trying to get at the deeper aspects of some of these conflicts, particularly in Iraq and Syria. And so for me, that means trying to get to the point where I was in Afghanistan of knowing the country and speaking the language. So I'm learning Arabic now, for instance which is, by the way, a lot harder than learning Farsi. And, and eventually going back there and spending large amounts of time there. And I know you said that it's like it's a fool's errand to try to write a book on Syria, <laughs> uh, which you're probably exactly right. Oh, but, but that's also what Spoiler I Spoiler alert, everyone dies. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but I'd like to try to go back and try to understand Syria more and, and see if I, there's a way I can tell that story. I mean, look, if anyone's, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you. Um, are you going to write a thesis also for this PhD? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to... Working on the thesis. Uh, Can you just write a book and make it your thesis, or do you have to? Is that disqualify it for being a thesis? Yeah, I think so. I think you have to actually say something true sociologically <laughs> more than just <laughs> yeah. It seems to me like some of this stuff is is kind of a young man's game. Like I don't see a lot I'm of like fifty five so. <laughs> year olds out there. No, you're um, you're quite young for physics. You're like kind of in the middle range uh, for like a, for war zones. Like, do you do you see yourself as a, like a ticking clock and being able to have these experiences, or do you want to just keep doing them for the rest of your life? No, I don't, I don't think I can do war for the rest of my life. I think that's um, uh, life's you know. Too short and too interesting for something like that. I think life's too long for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, or that, yeah. I'm interested in very, very many different types of things, uh, and um, I'm, it's not even that I'm interested in war as such. I'm interested in particular types of stories. I'm interested in the story of Syria just because the uh, you know I, I reported in Libya, I reported in Egypt, I was in Tahrir Square when when Mubarak had fallen, and so I was there for all of the hope um, and aspirations of the Arab Spring, and I was there fairly early on in Syria and saw that as well. Yeah, And I think there's a sort of really important and poignant story to tell about the Arab Spring and what that says about our era today, this era of neoliberalism where people feel like, you know, around the world there's all sorts of rebellions and, and revolts, yet there's nothing coming out of it that's positive, you right. know? And I don't know if I'm the person to be able to tackle that, but I would like to try to understand it more and get get at that. That's in the short term. But in the, in the medium and long term, I, I definitely don't want to be doing conflict. I think it's uh, not the sort of thing you, – you, know, you, you meet sort of grizzled old conflict veterans and uh, it's not somebody I want it's to It's not be. your bag? Yeah, it's not. Does this kind of a lifestyle – are you able to maintain like relationships? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> do you have a apartment? Do you have a like? Do you have a place you live? Like, 
I'm curious. We're going down a dark hole yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I live in New York now, so yeah. it's easier. It's it's not like living you know overseas, but it's not the easiest to, in terms of relationships or in terms of um, having a normal life, and certainly in terms of having a normal relationship with your parents. I should say, and it's the one thing I would advise anybody who wants to do war reporting is to sort sort out your relationship with your parents before you do that. How do you justify this kind of a career to your parents? Why I've 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 yet to do so. Um, yeah. My parents are doctors, and so they they don't consider careers like journalism to be serious careers. <laughs> Being a finalist for the National Book Award helped a little bit for them because they were able to see like my name in the paper and everything, but um, it's still a slog, and I think they'd be quite happy if I told them, if I called them up tomorrow and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to settle down and go back to med school or something. I think they'd be much more happy. All right. Well, um, I don't. I don't think we're going to be able to make your uh, parents happy. Uh, to not. Not at least uh, tonight. But uh, maybe I plant, maybe I planted the seed <laughs> right. in a medical career with you here. Um, thank you very much for coming in. Anand Gopal. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, thanks to Anand Gopal for coming in on short notice. Uh, thanks to our intern, Rachel Mabe. If you have not yet downloaded the Long Form app, uh, you are in a minority. We, we were on the front page of the App Store during Christmas, and a whole wave of people are now using the app. Why are you not using the app? Uh, it's a way to follow all kinds of great writers who are on this show, as well as discover publications from around the world and see what your friends are recommending. So please download it today. It's totally free. Just go to iTunes and search for Longform. Go on your phone to the App Store. Search for Longform. It's available for the iPad and the iPhone. Thanks. I'll be back here next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.